This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Reincarnation, recorded on November 23, 2003, in Eugene, Oregon, at the Center for Sacred Sciences. So, this morning the question comes from Elena, who says she doesn't mind if I mention her name. So here's the question. Can you address the question of reincarnation? Not in the way it was treated in ancient India, but the most contemporary trends, remembrance of past lives, that we are incarnate on this planet, in this body, to learn lessons and have new experiences. The question of karma comes up, etc. So that's sort of the first part. Then the second part is, how different mystical traditions view this? And the third part, what about the opinion that reincarnation was present in early Christianity, but was eliminated from the Gospels on purpose? And then she says, Elizabeth Clare, prophet, uh, writes about it in the last years of Jesus. What is your understanding of this, Elena? Uh, let me just say at the top here, I have not read Elizabeth Clear Prophet, so I can't comment on that at all. Um, but uh, otherwise, I thought, yes, it'd be interesting to take up the topic of reincarnation. Uh, it's certainly very prominent in Eastern traditions, so it's good to have an understanding of how they treat it. And then also she asked about how it's treated in the West, or what it might have looked like in the early days in the West. So... Uh, I want to ask, first of all, who believes in reincarnation? In, in some sense here. Well, wow, that's quite interesting. Okay. I want to begin with a story. This is a story of my teacher, Franklin Merrill Wolf, who was a, when I knew him anyway, a 96-year-old mystic. And he was trained as a philosopher and as a mathematician, so he was a very rational uh, person. And he believed in reincarnation. He did not talk about it very much. I never heard him talk about past lives or anything like that, or any future lives or whatever. But he had taken the Bodhisattva vow, which comes from the Buddhist tradition. You don't have to be a Buddhist to take it. You do have to believe in reincarnation. And the Bodhisattva or Kuan Yin vow, which is the female version of it, the same vow, is essentially this, that if you attain enlightenment, instead of uh, sort of disappearing off into the peace that passes all understanding of nirvana, that you uh, intentionally come back and take future births to help other beings attain enlightenment. So you don't just disappear off into the clouds, so to speak. So he recommended taking the Bodhisattva vow. And the only time I actually ever heard him talk about reincarnation specifically in relation to himself was when Andrea, who some of you know, who was his uh, nurse, companion, student, all those wrapped up into one. She lived with him at the time on this ranch down in Lone Pine. She would kind of tease him because he was brought up as a Victorian gentleman. And in the Buddhist sutras, there are vivid descriptions of what sorts of births you might have to take in order to help people. And so she'd sit down with him and she'd say, now, yogi, we called him yogi as a term of endearment. She say, now Yogi, it says here, now listen to this, that you are vowing that you will take a rebirth as a slave. Would you be willing to do that? And he'd say, yes, if it was necessary. And she'd say, well, and but even as a eunuch, would you be willing to do that? And he'd say, yes, if it were necessary. And even as a prostitute, would you be willing to do that? Yes, if it were necessary. And finally, she said, would, would you be willing to come back as a madam in a New Orleans whorehouse? Yes, if it was necessary. So, the point is, he did believe in reincarnation. Now, a mathematics professor had discovered his work and came out to visit for a weekend. I think he was from Dartmouth, I'm not sure, but a high-class Eastern college, one of those small Eastern colleges. And in those days, I used to sort of act as an interpreter for Dr. Wolf. Interpreter not because Dr. Wolf didn't speak perfectly good English, but at 96... He sometimes had trouble uh, holding a conversation for a couple of hours. So I would sit with Dr. Wolf and whoever wanted to talk to him, and I would answer the questions, and Dr. Wolf would be there to nod or to add something, or if somebody 
didn't think that I had it right, they could ask Dr. Wolf and he could confirm or reject what I said and so forth. So it worked out very well and uh, it allowed us to go on for longer and explore topics that he couldn't have done at that age uh, anymore. So this professor came and he was steeped in Dr. Wolf's work and he had a lot of very intelligent questions to ask about enlightenment and this and that and we talked a couple hours in the morning and the afternoon and at the end of about two or three days he finally said, he said, well, he said, you know, everything you said makes sense. I can accept it all. He says, the one thing I just can't believe in is reincarnation. And I had never talked to Dr. Wolf about this, but I said, well, actually, reincarnation is not given by enlightenment. Dr. Wolf believes in it as a matter of logic, as a, the most logical theory about how the world works. And... Uh, professor was a little surprised and shocked at that and he looked at Dr. Wolf and I kind of held my breath because I was going out <laughs> on a limb there and Dr. Wolf said yes that is true my belief in reincarnation is the result of logical deduction and this is very important enlightenment gnosis realization does not confirm or disconfirm any particular theory about how the world works. With this exception, if the theory says there's no such thing as enlightenment, then it disconfirms that. But otherwise, what it really reveals is that all these theories, all these worldviews, all these cosmological paradigms are imaginary. That none of them are ultimately true in any sense. That the truth that is realized in enlightenment or realization is not a conceptual truth. It's beyond all this and that all conceptual truths are just that. They are products of our thinking minds. They are imaginary in that literal sense. They are images created by our minds uh, about how the world works. In a very simple uh, way to say this, it's like connecting the dots. Do you remember those pictures you used to have as a kid and they would just be dots on a page and then you'd have to go and and connect them all, and a picture would emerge. Well, we are constantly doing that about the world. We are constantly connecting all our experience and emerging with pictures. The pictures are in our minds. They're not out there in the world. This is the whole point. So these worldviews, these theories, are extremely useful, but they are not true in the same way that the truth that mystics testify to is true. So this is very important. So when we talk about reincarnation or whether there's reincarnation or not reincarnation or whatever, I just want to have that perspective from a mystic's point of view, that perspective. So let's uh, talk about these three parts of this question, but I do want to reverse the order a little bit and I want to save the mystic's view of reincarnation for last here. So let's begin with contemporary ideas in the West today, I assume, about reincarnation. Uh, in terms of lessons to be learned and new experiences and why we're put on the planet and so forth and so on. And also the idea of uh, was reincarnation part of early Christianity. So I'm going to give you a quick little history of reincarnation in the West. Uh, at least the history that I can discern quickly from reading through these uh, reference books that I mentioned before. Murci Iliade, for instance, and he's a very renowned scholar of comparative religion. So this is if you like the establishment view, uh, I know other people have different views, but I'm just giving you what seems to be the consensus of modern scholarship on this issue. And the earliest evidence we have of belief in reincarnation in the West is probably Pythagoras. There's some indication maybe the Celts and Druids and so forth had some belief in it, but what could have influenced us was Pythagoras. Pythagoras was a 6th uh, century B.C., Greek philosopher, mathematician, and mystic. And uh, a lot of what we know about him is kind of speculative because he didn't write anything himself. It was a lot of people wrote about him. But as far as we can tell, one of the things he definitely believed in was reincarnation. And that got passed on down through the Platonic traditions. Plato <laughs> believed in reincarnation, wrote about reincarnation, and Neoplatonism, and so forth, all of which indirectly influenced Christianity when Christianity became the dominant religion of the Western world. So indirectly, there may have been some influences there. But in terms of the Christian religion itself, the uh, only indication I could find that anybody seriously believed in reincarnation were the Manichaeans. Uh, Mani was a prophet born in Babylon, self-proclaimed prophet, and he had a very dualistic doctrine. 
and he got this from various sources, among them Christianity. I think they took Christ as a prophet or some sort of savior figure in their religion. So he was uh, claiming Christ as one of their boys. He also borrowed from Zoroastrianism and perhaps Buddhism and so forth. Anyway, his theory was very dualistic. And in a nutshell, it was that the world was made up of two forces, the light and the dark. And the light was good, was God, was spirit. The dark was evil, was matter was Satan and so forth. And at some point, these got uh, mixed up and part of the light got imprisoned in the matter. And so each of us are souls made of light and we're imprisoned in these bodies. And our task is to work our way out of this prison and return to the light. And that at the end of time, everything's going to get separated out again and the light will all be light and the dark will all be dark and all those who belong to light will now not be contaminated by the evil and the darkness and so forth. And he believed in reincarnation and that was a task that you had through many lifetimes. That's what you were doing, purifying yourself from this dark matter. This is not a mystical view of things because uh, one of the key things about mysticism, it's non-dualistic. So any sort of dualistic religion is not mystical. But in any case, he was a contemporary with the early Christian church and they were competitors, rivals for the hearts and minds of the people of the Roman Empire. Uh, Augustine was very attracted to Manichaeism, for instance, and uh, eventually rejected it and actually uh, attacked it polemically as a heresy and eventually was uh, considered a heresy by the Orthodox Church and it was eradicated. Then uh, reincarnation reappears and these are major trends. Now, there might have been small little sects and so forth that believed in reincarnation, but we're talking about trends that had some historical effect. The next time it reappears is among the Cathars in 12th century southern France in the Landoc region. The Cathars inherited some version of Manichaeism, very dualistic, and they also believed in reincarnation. And they were also considered heretics by the papacy, and the church was you know, well-established. And they were wiped out in the Albigensian Crusade. But interestingly enough, at the same period over in Provence, which is also in France, the Jewish Kabbalists developed this doctrine of transmigration. Gilgul is the uh, Hebrew word. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's G-I-L-G-U-L, transliterated into English anyway. And they had this idea that souls transmigrate. Now, whether they got this from the Cathars or perhaps some Neoplatonic influence, we're not really sure. But at least among the Kabbalists, who were the mystics of Judaism, there was a belief in reincarnation. This found its fullest development in the 16th century in Safad, which is in the Mideast, by uh, Isaac Luria, a great Kabbalist, who developed this whole idea of the transmigration of souls as being an opportunity, and I think this is perhaps what is the hallmark of Western views of uh, reincarnation, that the original Kabbalists had saw it as a kind of punishment, that the souls, you know, had not achieved what they were supposed to achieve, so they had to stay around here, and he said, no, it's really an opportunity, uh, that if you have not been able to fulfill the commandments in one lifetime, you'll come back and you'll be able to do that. And eventually, you will be restored to God. And the Kabbalist idea was similar to the Manichaean idea, but not dualistic, was that souls are sparks of the divine that have fallen, and our task is to raise them back, to restore them to the divine. The Lurian Kabbalists also believe that all souls are actually one soul. It's Adam's soul dispersed out through all of us. And so each of our souls is really part of the same soul. Here's what Gershom Sholem, a great Kabbalist scholar, says about this. If Adam contained the entire soul of humanity, all transmigrations of souls are in the last resort only migrations of the one soul whose exile atones for its fall. Each individual soul retains its individual existence only until the moment when it has worked out its own spiritual restoration. Transmigration is thus no longer mere retribution. It is also at the same time a chance of fulfilling the commandments which it was not given for the soul to fulfill before, and of thereby continuing the work of self-emancipation. So here is a sort of positive view, not just that reincarnation is a bad thing, but it's actually an opportunity and there are tasks to be done. 
I don't think uh, most of you who believe in reincarnation see it as a, an opportunity to fulfill commandments that you failed to fulfill in the last life, but that was their idea. But notice this is very interesting, that the soul's task here is emancipation from this fallen condition and a return to God, and in that return, a dissolution of the individuality of the soul. So it's kind of interesting, because this is an idea that you'll see we'll find in other mystical traditions. In any case, about the same time, Kabbalists who had converted to Christianity in Europe, whether by force or choice, were translating some of the Kabbalist texts into European languages from Hebrew. But they were intentionally mistranslating them, because these were heavy secrets that were well guarded for centuries. And so perhaps there was pressure from the goyim around them to make these texts available, but they would leave out a lot of key stuff. But reincarnation was part of this. And these were discovered by the, the new humanists of the Renaissance and then uh, humanists that came after them who were quite intrigued and started developing some ideas about reincarnation and studied and elaborated these texts and developed what is now called the Christian Kabbalah. And one of the ways you can tell, it's interesting, when it's a Christian Kabbalah, is usually spelled with C instead of K. So if you go to a occult bookstore, for instance, and you see a book on Kabbalism spelled with a K, that's probably a Jewish Kabbalism. If you see it spelled with a C, it's probably this, from a Jewish point of view, distorted form of Christian Kabbalism. In any case... Christian Kabbalism was around for the next few centuries, and it finally influenced Madame Blavatsky, who is the founder of the Theosophical Society, and these ideas of reincarnation that came down through the Christian Kabbalah, then mixed with Eastern ideas of reincarnation, and that is probably the source of most of our contemporary ideas about reincarnation and what it's about. Uh, Theosophy was uh, tremendously influential in a lot of these movements of the early centuries, science of mind kinds of movements. I don't know if science of mind specifically, but those sorts of movements. Now, it's not just that it's all received tradition. I remember when I was growing up, there was a book that made quite a stir called The Case of Bridia Murphy. Does anybody remember that? Apparently this woman in therapy had remembered a past life in Ireland and, and this and that. Uh, as I recall, and I didn't follow it that closely, uh, there was another book written a few years later that debunked it. They had gone back to Ireland. They'd supposedly found places that she had talked about in her therapy or in her dreams or whatever, and that it was you know, not as solid a case as had been presumed and so forth. So people still do have experiences of past <clears throat> lives, and um, I don't think that's all that uncommon. And, of course, today there are um, past life therapy sorts of things and regressing to your past life. Uh, I don't know much about all that, I must say. I was exposed to that when I worked at the Bodhichi bookstore, because a lot of people there were into these sorts of things. Uh, I was kind of intrigued to find that the past lives people remembered were always like they were princesses in Egypt or something. I don't know if anybody remembered being a fishmonger in 10th century London or something like that, or just a peasant, a Russian serf, or, you know, they're always... Some sort of glamorous memories and whatnot. But uh, in any case, I don't know much about those modern ideas. But this whole idea that we are here to, to do something uh, positive and there are lessons to be learned, I think we can trace back to this Christian Kabbalah and probably Isaac Luria in the, in the very long run. Aside from the Manichaeans, the Cathars, the Christian Kabbalahs, I know of no major Christian sect that believed in reincarnation. A research project maybe some of you'd like to do is go back and read the Nag Hammadi Library, you know, the complete uh, collection of texts that were dug up in the desert after the Second World War, and see, there might have been some reference there. I read this 15 years ago, I don't recall, but there might have been some reference to reincarnation in those. But in, as far as I know, there were no major sects, and as far as I know, there was no evidence that the Gospels once contained reincarnation doctrines which were later censored out. I mean, the four canonical Gospels, as far as I know. So, that's uh, a background on modern ideas. Now, the question to ask from Mystic's point of view is, what lessons are we here to learn? What sorts of experiences are we here to have? That's really the primary question, not is it true or not? Because from the ultimate point of view, it's neither true nor not true. It's a theory. 
So we want to ask, what is the value of it? And since a lot of you actually do believe in reincarnation, I'd like to just get some ideas you might have about what sorts of lessons are you here to learn in these uh, various incarnations. Nobody has any idea why you're here? Yes. Well, from a mystical point of view, that the self isn't real, that the self is a mentally created concept. You want to come up and give the rest of it? I mean, no. we, we've just finished. <laughs> we can all go home now. It's a nice, beautiful, sunny day. No, I'm teasing you. You're right on, but you know, you're letting the cat out of the bag. I wanted to get some other non-mystical ideas. It was a leading question. Yes. Well, the, the whole thing about karma, which was mentioned in the question, that there are consequences for our behaviors and actions, and uh, if we don't get it, if we're a murderer in one existence, you know, and, and we, we have no, suffer no remorse about that and so forth, then the idea is that we'll get reincarnated as a murder victim and, you know, get to go through that and maybe get it, you know, say, oh, gee, I maybe shouldn't behave that way. <laughs> yeah, there are those ideas that there's a purification that goes on through these reincarnations. If, if you have the mindfulness to, to know what's going on. Yes. As a... Um as a child, my dad believed in reincarnation and would tell us all his stuff. And he said, one thing I remember him saying was that if you were to commit suicide in this lifetime, that you would come back as a quadriplegic. Did you commit suicide in a previous life? Oh, George! <laughs> that is interesting because we're always looking for meaning in what happens to us. And one of the powers of the whole theory of reincarnation, it can be used to explain why you are in the position you are in today vis-a-vis other people. Why is everybody else apparently running around healthy and happy and George's not all that old, he's about my age, isn't. So, okay, he committed suicide in a previous life. I didn't, so that explains it, right? Uh, <laughs> he might not buy the theory, but... <laughs> uh, and actually, I've, I've heard that a lot, and I think that it's very comforting. It can also be kind of dangerous. It's a way we can explain away things in an easy way rather than look into it, you know. So you could end up with a fatalistic idea, and instead of looking for a cure for ALS, we'd say, well, we have the explanation. You don't have to look any farther. Yes? My grandmother, who is a very conservative Christian, uh, went into a coma in her middle adult life and when she came out of the coma she told everyone that she had experienced living many lives and she told my mother that she had not always been her mother but that my mother was had been her mother in other lives and that there was a reason for everything that happened and it was all to learn unconditional love wow that's a very buddhist idea in Buddhism, uh, it's stressed that uh, one of the things to cultivate compassion, you should realize that every being has been your mother at one time. See, they're infinite births, so every possibility had to have already happened. Every being, the spider that you want to squish, who was your mother at one time. And so when you see that spider, instead of squishing, you stop and say, oh, this being was my mother once, and I should have compassion for her because this being once raised me and had compassion for me and all that. So this is amazing. This is almost stolen right out of Buddhist doctrines. And from a mystical point of view, it's an excellent use of the theory. It's a use of the theory that actually promotes love and compassion. Anything that promotes love and compassion from a mystic's point of view is, is uh, excellent. Yeah? I suspect that one of the reasons that reincarnation is um, embraced is because people don't want to think that this is the, their only time around. <laughs> Very interesting. We're going to get to that in a moment because this is a particularly Western view of the, of reincarnation. In the East, it's considered something awful. <laughs> yeah, Deanna. Well, just the Tibetan thing is that um, you know this is a precious opportunity now to be born as a human, and um, afterwards you you may go back as a human, or you might go to the, one of the hell realms, or even one of the god realms. Which the God realms are just supposed to be not that great either because you don't have opportunities then to be, to be working towards. Right. Sherry. There's a, um, there's a book out by a um, 
kind of conservative psychiatrist called Journey of Souls. And in his practice, he had—he was also a, a hypnotherapist. And so he had people in trance states, and they would recall these elaborate um, past lifetimes and also memories of heaven, where you go to different schools to learn what you need to learn to prepare you for learning in a next lifetime that will make that lifetime learning more edifying. So what are you supposed to be learning? This is my question. What's the pot at the end of the rainbow here? Well, it has to do with what Bonnie was pointing to, the, the oneness of all and of you, that you're a wave in the ocean. Um, and not separate from anyone else. Well, from Mystic's point of view, the only real lesson worth learning is how to end suffering and attain happiness. Bottom line. Everything else is secondary to that. So if you have to make up for, because you killed somebody in one lifetime and now you're going to be a murder victim in the other lifetime and all that, and you're going to learn that, oh, now there's justice in the world or whatever, the ultimate thing is to put an end to suffering and attain happiness. For mystics, that is the definition of good and evil. Everything that's good promotes happiness. Everything that's evil promotes suffering. We haven't even said what that might be yet. But that is the real question here. And mystics always advise, let's cut to the chase. Let's not, you know, think around and all this little stuff. Let's go for that. So, how is this done? First, we have to understand what is the cause of suffering. So, from an Eastern point of view... All sentient beings are caught in this world of samsara, it's called. It's really a cyclic existence. It's often depicted as a wheel of birth, death, and rebirth. And it goes round and round and round. And so sentient beings go round and round and round on this wheel. And somebody mentioned this. They aren't necessarily born into human bodies next time around. In fact, it's considered quite rare to get a human birth. Uh, in Buddhism, you go through six realms you can cycle through, which include several hell realms, several heaven realms, uh, ghost realms, hungry ghost realms, let's see, animal realm, and so forth and so on. And the only uh, realm that you have an opportunity to get off all this is the human realm. But these realms, uh, most of them are unpleasant. Even the God realms, eventually your karma runs out and you fall back into the cycle. So you're constantly cycling around. And this is not good news. Somebody mentioned this. That, you know, <laughs> this is bad news. This is what the East Hindus and Buddhists want to escape. It's all suffering. It's a mass of suffering. And the Buddhist first noble truth is that this world of samsara, the cyclic existence, this wheel of birth and death, is suffering. That's the Buddha's first noble truth. The Buddha's four noble truths sums up all of Buddhism and in a way sums up all of mysticism. The first noble truth is this is suffering. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes experience happiness in a, a limited sense, a, a transitory sense, that we don't have delight and pleasure and things like that. But they all turn back into suffering. There's no abiding happiness in this world is what he meant. The second noble truth is that there is a cause for this, which is karma, and the whole Buddhist doctrine is explaining that. The third noble truth is that there is an end to this, the possibility of an end. And the fourth noble truth is the Buddhist path, which takes you to that end. So those are the four noble truths. But the first one, the first one that really has to be understood is this is suffering. This is all suffering. Here's how he uh, writes about it. These are the old polytexts, which I love. They have a kind of fundamentalist character there. <laughs> what now is the noble truth of suffering? Birth is suffering. Decay is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Not to get what one desires is suffering. In short, the five aggregates of existence are suffering. Inconceivable is the beginning of this samsara, not to be discovered a first beginning of beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, are hurrying and hasting through this round of rebirths. And thus have you long time undergone suffering, undergone torment, 
undergone misfortune and filled the graveyards full, verily long enough to be dissatisfied with every form of existence, long enough to turn away and free yourselves from them all. So this is a Buddhist view of samsara. It's not a good thing that we get to be reborn here. Thank God I get another chance and all that. No, it's a horrible thing. You're going to have to go through it all over again. Were you unhappy when your mother died, your father died, your cat died? Well, guess what? It's all going to happen again in the next birth. It's just going to go on and on and on and on, and there is no permanent happiness to be found here. That's the Buddhist view anyway. And as I said, human birth is one of the better ones. I mean, the hell realms, the hungry ghost realms, the animal realms are really hellish. There's suffering no end there. So this human birth then is considered a great opportunity. Only in this human birth is there the possibility of escaping from this wheel. Because if you're in the God realms, you're not motivated. There's so little suffering up there that you don't care. You just get drunk and do, you know, hanky-panky all day. And in the hell realms, you're so overwhelmed with suffering that you don't even have the opportunity to get a little wisdom, a little insight into what's going on. So here's what Shankara, great Hindu mystic, says. What greater fool can there be than the man who has obtained this rare human birth together with bodily and mental strength and yet fails through delusion to realize his own highest good. So in both Hinduism and Buddhism, the purpose of an incarnation, the lesson to be learned, is take advantage of it here because you're not going to get this for a long time again. You're going to experience all this suffering, and now you have the opportunity to free yourself. But we have to understand how this samsara works before we can free ourselves. What drives it? What's the mechanism of it? And the analysis in the East, both in Hinduism and Buddhism, is it's all driven by the law of karma. So here's what the Buddhist scholar Walpola Rahula says. Now the Pali word, oh, the Buddhist view. Now the Pali word karma, or the Sanskrit word karma, and by the way, I'm just going to take a little digression here for those of you who are first uh, getting exposed to Eastern traditions and stuff. Uh, the original language of Buddhism was Pali, and then it was all translated into Sanskrit, and then more texts are written in Sanskrit. So there's a slight discrepancy. It's Dhamma and Dharma, uh, Kama and Karma, uh, and so forth. So if you know, I mean, I spent years trying to figure out what's going on here until I realized that, no, these are really the same word here, just a slight difference because they come from a different language. Anyway, now, the Pali word Kama, or the Sanskrit word Karma, literally means action, doing. But in the Buddhist theory of karma, it has a specific meaning. It means only volitional action, not all action. Good karma produces good effects, and bad karma produces bad effects. But thirst, volition, karma, whether good or bad, has one effect, one force, the force to continue in a good or bad direction. Whether good or bad, it is relative, and it is within the cycle of continuity of samsara. An arahant, an enlightened one, though he acts, does not accumulate karma because he is free from the false idea of self. For him there is no rebirth. Now this is very important. Only volitional action produces karma. That is action you've chosen to do. And the word here is thirst, so it carries volition and craving. It's built in the same concept, the idea of I want. So it's self-centered, volitional action based on craving. I want this, I'm going to do this to get that. I'm the doer, I'm the actor, I'm the one who's uh, operating here. That produces karma. So if you want the good of other people, that'll produce better fruits. If you want your own good, and if you actually harm other people, that will produce bad food. But the point is, all of this is what makes samsara go round and round. It's the energy that drives the wheel. It does not get you off the wheel. Doing good works gets you into a better birth, and eventually it'll get you into birth where you can practice uh, mystical practices and get off the wheel altogether. But just doing good works does not get you off the wheel. The same thing is true in Hinduism, by the way. Here's Shankara again. The ego sense is deep-rooted and powerful, 
for it has existed from beginningless time. It creates the impression that I am the actor. I am he who experiences. This impression causes our bondage to rebirth and death. This sense of I, then, of self, of a self-willing self, is at the heart of our being tied to samsara. Now, in the West, we don't have any concepts of karma or samsara or reincarnation, all that. But what we do have is the idea of a fallen condition or at the very least a forgetfulness in the Islam. This is not the equivalent of the fall, but a forgetfulness, a heedlessness and sin, which produce suffering and death. The wages of sin are suffering and death. So what is sin? Not from Jimmy Swaggart's point of view, from a mystic's point of view. Here's what the Christian author of the Cloud of Unknowing says. This foul, wretched lump called sin is none other than yourself, and that separates you from God. The self. Again, the self. And then, here's what uh, God tells Catherine of Siena, another Christian mystic. I want you to know that the will is the seat of all pain people suffer. For if the will is fully in accord with my will, there is no pain in suffering. So it's the self and the self constructed around this sense of self-will again. Here's uh, what Muhammad said, and this saying is one the Sufis or the mystics of Islam love to quote. Your very being and existence is a sin which is like no other sin. Which is why Hafiz, a great Sufi, says, the vision and will of selfhood are sacrilege in our religion. So it's the same thing. It's the self based on a sense of self-will. This is somehow the big problem. East or West, multiple incarnations are one incarnation. The Hindus and the Buddhists believe in reincarnation. The Sufis and the Christian mystics don't. But it's interesting that when we come down to what is the principal cause of suffering, because if we are interested in how to free ourselves from suffering, it doesn't matter. This the mystics agree on. It's the sense of being an independently willing separate self. So, the lesson we have to learn then is how to get over this sense of being an independently willing separate self. If we want to put an end to suffering in this lifetime or any lifetime, it doesn't matter. Somewhere along the line, we're going to have to deal with this. And the mystics of all traditions, East or West, say, well, the way you do that is walk a spiritual path. And the time to walk a spiritual path is now. Yes, you may come back in 10,000 kalpas and get another crack at it if you're a Hindu or Buddhist. If you're a a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian, this is your only chance really to do it. But who cares? Either way, here you are. You have a precious human birth. So precious. Why not take advantage of it? How do you do this? Well, it's very simple, actually, and the mystics of all traditions agree. The first thing you do is try to stop acting out of self-centered motivations, that I want this, I want that, all this grasping. That just perpetuates the sense of self. Whether you get or don't get, you're going to perpetuate the sense of self. If you get, you're going to say, oh, goody, I got. And there's I, the hero of the story. And if you lose, you're going to say, oh, I didn't get. And there's I again. And so you just keep this story going of a self, of the idea, the sense that I am a self, I am a self. So you stop that. You stop that. And then, but what's going to happen to me? How would I do anything? Or why would I do anything? Is the question people ask. What mystics say, if you stop that, you will discover something not create it, you will discover something and that is a native, inherent love and compassion. It is the divine motivation for acting and it is all of us. And if we just stop acting in a self-centered way and let our attention go out there into the world and start being focused on our own misery and discomfort and all that, we'll see opportunities arise here and there to be of some help to somebody. You don't have to be Mother Teresa of Calcutta. You know, it's helping the old lady with her packages. It's getting to the point of helping me with my packages. You know, in the last year or so, the young clerk said, would you like some help out with your packages? Uh, 
I'm not quite ready yet, but there will come a day if I live long enough. I will say, yes, thank you. I would like some help. Anyway, cultivating love and compassion, allowing this love and compassion to be the motive of your action instead of self-centered grasping. Second of all, practice inquiry. What is this self that you think you are? Look into it. What is this self-will? Ask yourself these questions. Do I really will anything or not? How does will happen? How are decisions made? Am I really this body? Am I really these thoughts? Am I really these emotions? Don't just accept the worldview you got from your culture or from your local little clique or your friends or your peers. Look into it yourself. And the way to look into it is, first of all, to find some way to get beyond the thoughts you already have about everything, the way you've connected all the dots up, not to get rid of that, but to set that aside and have an immediate, direct, empirical experience of how things are. And for that, you need some sort of meditation or contemplative prayer practice, some sort of training in that. And then finally, if you have some sense of the divine beyond all this, shining through all this, you can practice surrendering your will to the divine will. As Jesus summed it up very nicely, let thy will be done, not my will. And that would go for any mystical tradition. So these are simple. They're not easy, but they're simple things that you can start to do to undo this strong sense of being a separate self for the self-will and whatnot. But ultimately, ultimately what all mystics of all traditions say, whether they believe in reincarnation or not, is ultimately you have to have a realization, a gnosis, an enlightenment that this self just simply isn't there. It is imaginary. It's not true. And not only is this self not here, samsara isn't here. This fallen condition does not exist. It's something that we have superimposed on the true experience, which is a divine experience, not a sinful experience. So, here's how the Lankavatara Sutra, a great Buddhist text, describes this. There has been an inconceivable transformation death by which the false imagination of his particularized individual personality has been transcended by a realization of his oneness with the universalized mind of Buddhahood, from which realization there will be no recession. That's a Buddhist way of putting it. Buddhists like all those big words, you know. The idea here, though, is this individual sense of self is gone, and there's a realization of the oneness with the universal mind, this uh, big mind, as the Buddhists talk about it. Primordial awareness. They don't like the word God or whatever because we tend to objectify God. Here's what Lali Shwari, Hindu mystic, says. When the mirror of my mind became clear, I realized the fundamental principle. I saw that God is not other than me, and this non-dual knowledge completely destroyed all thought of you and I. I came to know that this entire world is not different from God. Now, she uses the word God here. The Buddhists don't like the word God, but it's talking about the same thing. This realization of what we think of as the little self doesn't exist. That What we really are is this, if we want to use more generic terms, this ground of all being, this universal consciousness. Here's what the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart says, and he calls this enlightenment or realization breaking through. He doesn't even have a term for it. It happened to him, so he had to come up with something. So here's what he says. In this breaking through, I receive that God and I are one. Isn't that just what Lali Shwari said? She's in Kashmir, halfway around the world. He's in uh, Germany. Oh, but they're discovering the same thing. I receive God and I are one. Then I am what I was, and then I neither diminish nor increase, for I am then an immovable cause that moves all things. Now, the Christians don't believe in reincarnation, but here's this idea that you don't increase or diminish. I mean, if they did believe in reincarnation, there'd be no reincarnation here. So, then the question is, well, if there is no self, 
then to whom would the laws of karma apply? Who would be born and die and be reborn? And the mystic's answer is, no one. It's not happening. It's not true. East and West. Now, this is very important. Even in the East, where at one level they believe in reincarnation, they teach reincarnation as the most all-inclusive theory that can explain how the world works and that you can use then to work your way out of this samsara. But ultimately, it does not exist. Here is the Tibetan Buddhist Dujum Lingpa. At no time throughout this beginningless succession of lifetimes has there ever been actual birth. There has merely been the appearance of birth. There has never been actual death. Only the transformation of apparent phenomena, like the shift from the dream state to the waking state. It ain't happening. Here's the Hindu, uh, Shankara. Here's how he describes his enlightenment in exactly the same terms. Until now I have been dreaming. In my dream I wandered through the forest of illusion from birth to birth, beset by all kinds of troubles and miseries, subject to reincarnation, decay, and death. Now by your infinite compassion, O Master, you have awakened me from my dream. You have set me free forever. Here's Rumi. Now, Rumi is a a Sufi, a Muslim poet and mystic. They don't believe in reincarnation. But this whole world of forgetfulness, of our fallen condition of suffering, here's what he says about it, using the same metaphor. The pillar of this world, O beloved, is heedlessness, ignorance. Wakefulness is this world's bane. Wakefulness comes from that world. When it prevails, this world is laid flat. So you wake up and you realize, well, wait a minute, there was no samsara, there was no fallen condition, there was no world full of sin and evil and all that. And here's the Christian mystic Simone Weil. We live in a world of unreality and dreams. To give up our imaginary position as the center, to renounce it, not only intellectually, but in the imaginative part of our soul. That means to awaken to what is real and eternal, to see the true light and hear the true silence. So, from a mystic's point of view, east or west, whether you believe in reincarnation or not, the point is suffering, the world of suffering, is a bad dream, literally. But the good news is that it is possible to wake up. It is possible to wake up in this lifetime, wherever lifetime you find yourself in. And really, from a mystic's point of view, that is all that matters. Everything else is secondary. All the arguments about reincarnation or not, or single incarnations or whatever, are all pale compared to this one essential point. This is the gospel of the mystics, the good news. Here you find yourself in a human birth. How you got here, who knows? Here you find yourself, and you have an opportunity. So I would say in a nutshell, that sums up the mystic's attitude towards reincarnation and non-reincarnation. Yes, Bonnie? Um, Given that the mystical point of view obviously overshadows this false sense of a world... Reincarnation seems to exist in some way, on some level. And if intention is something that that drives it from one life to another, and this intention is based on a false image, on a, on a false illusion, somehow this false illusion and this intention, this mentally created world, seems to have, seems to have an engine. It seems to still sort of exist with the false view but I guess what I'm trying to express is the sense of how this mentally created world recreates itself I'm going to give you an example I'm going to tell you a true story a true dream that I had in this dream uh, I am who I am and I am a teacher and I'm traveling with a young man 
and we're traveling along a road and we go into a tunnel somewhat like the tunnel on your way out to the coast you know that road and you go through that tunnel except it turns into a deeper longer tunnel and there are car wrecks on the side and it's, it's instead of just two little lanes got a lot of lanes and shoulders and pull over and there are these terrible car wrecks, burning wrecks, and there are ambulances going back and forth, and people pulling bodies out of these wrecks, and people screaming and on fire and so forth. And this young man is getting really disturbed, and I'm looking to see, well, is there something that we can do here? But everybody's being attended to by people who know better than us. I mean, there are a lot of professionals on the, on the job and whatnot. And then we come out of the tunnel, we come out into this meadow, and this is like the scene, if you remember the movie Gone with the Wind, where there's the middle of the war and Atlanta's being attacked and uh, I don't know Scarlet's running around looking for a doctor and then you see him treating somebody and the camera pulls back and pulls back and you see this whole freight yard just full of wounded men I mean as far as the eye can see well we come out on this meadow is like that they're just all these people from who knows what sort of disaster or wreck or you know what is going on but they're just casualties all over the place and this young man I'm with he's really upset I mean he's just devastated by all this and I say, well, you know, yes, it's one thing to have compassion all that, but don't be so overwhelmed because ultimately it's not real. This is a dream we're having. And I'm wearing a, a jacket I got from the um, paint factory. It's that f- fake silk, you know, it's like a rayon. And it has a very particular feel to it, you know. And I give it to him and I say, hold this jacket. And I say, do you see how real that feels? It really feels real. And you could really feel it in a dream, you know. I said, but I know it seems very real, but no, it's a dream. Don't you get it? And he says, no. And he says, now what do we do? And I said, well, we just have to keep going until you get it. (laughs) Now, this is an experience, and the experience is real. When mystics say, oh, it's just a bad dream, suffering isn't really happening, there are no births, there are no deaths, it's not to poo-poo anybody's experience of suffering. It's not to say that, you know, oh, you should just get over it, you know. It's just a bad dream. Stop complaining. The experience is real. As long as we're dreaming and don't know we're dreaming. It's very real. It's very real, and there are laws of cause and effect that operate. We have to keep going in that dream. We can't just decide, say, oh, I'm going to quit. The young man has to wake up. And by the way, I have to keep going in a dream with him, because that's my job, to be there with him, to go all through this with him. So this is a peculiar thing. When mystics say, well, it's just all a dream, a lot of people take that to mean sort of like dismissing all the suffering in the world. It's not true at all. And the proof of it is how much mystics have totally dedicated their lives to trying to get people to wake up, wake out of this bad dream. And even people like Jesus, who's actually killed for trying to do this. This is not to poo-poo it in any sense of the word. It's also, by the way, and I must add this, and I didn't say this in the major part of my talk, it's not that, oh, this is just a bad dream, and we just wake up, and, I don't know, you're in some sort of uh, back-to-the-womb kind of peace floating around in the warm waters of the oceanic consciousness or something like that. This world vanishes, as Rumi says. This world is laid flat. This world, it is the projection of of how we view the world onto experience. But experience itself then, when that projection is removed, is an experience of unutterable delight. It's not that experience is bad or something's wrong with it. This experience is the divine play. This experience is what God does for a living. You know, God's a great artist, as I always say over and over. This is the divine symphony. So it's not to diss this world either, if we could but see it truly. So a lot of people tend to think that, you know, mystics are trying to escape from all this, but the mystics are saying, no, let's face reality. Let's not try to escape from it. Instead of running off to uh, Hawaii to get away from your suffering, look into your suffering. As the Buddhists say, you know, the key to the release of suffering lies within suffering itself. It is to discover exactly that cause that produces the effect of the next one, of the next one, of the next one. And that will be, as the mystics say, some little grasping, some little uh, worry about me. What's going to happen to me? If you're always worried about what's going to happen to you, it's so obvious. I mean, you have to suffer. Even if you get to the God realms, in the back of your mind, you're going to be worried about what's going to happen to me when I fall out of the God realms. (laughs) It's going to poison your enjoyment in the God realms. 
all this worry about me, me, me. I mean, what would it mean to put that burden down? As Jesus said, you know, let go of your life. You'll discover eternal life. You try to hang on to your life, you're going to have suffering and death. It's not that the, the self is some dad little thing that we have to get rid of and we're greedy because we want to hang on to it. It is itself suffering. That is the sin like in which there is no other sin. To see that is to, you know, there comes a point on a mystical path, and I speak from experience, where you finally get it, and not only do you believe it as some sort of idea, but you start to experience the sense of self as the problem. And now you want to know how to get rid of it. Everybody says, yes, get rid of it. And you say, I, I got it, I got it. It's suffering. Now, take it from me. How, who do I give it to? <laughs> yes, Anita. Well, if you're an enlightened person and you're clear and you're totally blissful in that life and you're teaching everybody else like you're doing now, well, when the moment of death happens and you lose your body, what's left? And, and then we have this reincarnation theory. And I believe that the, the whole theory and the whole stories that you say now exist only to help us discover the clarity, to discover that we have to live with compassion, to discover to live with our heart. It's, it's just a whole lesson, uh, all kinds of different ways of making a lesson. That's right. But then re- reincarnation doesn't exist either. And, and if, you, if you die as an enlightened person, what happens then? Nothing? Well, we, I, I, I have to use the English language. The English language is subject and object construction. And so when I'm talking here, I'm a little bit falsifying my experience when I say I'm in this dream with this guy and all that. But here's the point. There is no one that has a body, see? So when you ask the question, well, what happens to you when your body drops away? You're still assuming that there is some self there. The realization is that there is no self here. So nothing happens when you die. Nothing happens when you... That's just what I read you. Dujam Lingpa says, you see, he says, in all this beginning existence, there has never been actual death, only the transformation of parent phenomena. You know, every night you lose your body in dreamless sleep, right? So what happens to you? Nothing. Nothing happens to you. But, you know, various levels of dreaming occur. So what we, in relative sense, call dreams start up again, then they'll go away, then waking life starts up, then it goes away, then dreams start up, they go away, then waking life, you know, it's just, as he says, transformation of phenomena. So So nothing happens to you. All these stories are just methods of teaching, right? Yes, that's a good way to put it. it. It doesn't really matter, ultimately speaking, what sort of worldview you have, as long as it's a worldview that has a exit sign in it. (laughs) Materialism does not have any exit sign. Materialism says, well, it's true that there is no self. Materialism agrees with the mystics, you know. There is no self in materialism. It's just matter. But they don't see any possibility of realizing abiding happiness. So you are actually this robot that is going through life and the best you can do is make the best of it, you know, go for the gusto and things like that. But we could use the word consciousness. It's a nice, good, modern, generic sort of word. It doesn't carry a lot of theological baggage. That is what is always there. That is what you are. But it is not a thing. It's not a being. It's not a self. It is the where all this stuff unfolds. The waking, the dreaming, the play, you know? It's the where of it all. We are the where. And that where isn't going anywhere, isn't coming anywhere. You know, nothing's going to happen to it. That's the relief. Not that we're going to be born again and have to watch a cat die again <laughs> and go through all that. Yeah. Um, there's this uh, apparent contradiction in Buddhism, and I think maybe stems from the fact that Buddhism arose out of a Hindu backdrop and reincarnation was well established as a, an idea, you know, cultural thing. So, Buddhism just took it on. Um, and I recall reading, I can't remember who, but I think a contemporary Buddhist teacher was asked, um, okay, we have, in Buddhism we have these doctrines. We have the doctrine of reincarnation, or the notion of reincarnation, and we have the doctrine of no self. Uh, how do these two fit together? If there's no self, then what is it that reincarnates? And this teacher said, uh, 
it's your neuroses. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Well, it's like the young man in my dream. The difference between young man and me in my dream was I was lucid and he wasn't. That was the only difference. That's the only difference in the world. No, no other difference between us. Now, it isn't interesting that I can talk about this young man in my dream and I'm in my dream and all that, and yet, wait a minute, who's dreaming all this? Well, this is, again, an example of how this could be. How could you be in a dream right now? You'd be talking to all these people. Hi, Mary Sant, Nirja. You have that experience every night in your dream. It's not so mystifying. Every single night. There are differences we can distinguish usually waking experience from dreaming experience. Sometimes we can't, you notice. Ever woke up in the morning from maybe a bad dream? Oh, what a relief. You woke up, you know, you go into the bathroom to take a pee and there's a dead corpse in the bathtub. (laughs) You ever had some experience like that where you're still, oh my gosh. So sometimes we can't tell. Almost always in our dreams, we don't know we're dreaming. Only when we wake up in retrospect, we say, oh, that was a dream. But as we're dreaming, we think they're perfectly real. Yes? There's a phrase in the New Testament uh, we see now through a glass darkly, then face to face. And it seems to me that's part of the reason that the Buddha stresses in the first uh, precept or whatever it is about how you're suffering, that life is suffering and the self is suffering and so on. And because the life that we live seems so real and concrete and undreamy to us because we're still th- looking through the glass darkly. We, in other words, we, we don't have any sense of what it's like to be on the other side. Maybe some flashes, you know, some of us, we've had flashes and some, some inklings and some little breakthroughs and so on. And so we really can't appreciate what the mystics are saying about this life of samsara and that's true. And, you know, it's not absolutely necessary to have a teacher, an incarnate teacher anyway. In some sense, it's always necessary to have something as a teacher, but not necessarily an incarnate teacher. But teachers do provide us with this one essential role. They're here to bear witness. That's what Jesus said with Pilate. You know, he says, what are you doing here? Whatever. He says, I've come to bear witness to the truth. That's really what it's all about. And so there's somebody, a voice in the wilderness, who says there is another way to go here. You know? and, and that's just very important because you're absolutely right. We do not see it. And so we end up measuring our relative happiness against our relative suffering. And that's what keeps samsara going. And suffering in Pali is uh, Sanskrit is dukkha is the word. And it doesn't just mean the big ones like I read you here, the despair, lamentation, grief, and all that. It means the little discontent that runs through our lives. Do you know what I mean? That every moment there's a little something that's not quite right. That we just, if we get a little better, we're always trying to adjust, you know, the thermostat or this or that or whatever. You know, the food at restaurant wasn't quite as good as it was last time. This, the restaurant's going downhill a little bit, you know. I have to find another one to go. I'm not coming back. You know what I'm talking about? Just this, that dukkha. Dukkha also means the big things. But it means this, you know, this thread of discontent. All this is what keeps us moving, what keeps the wheel turning, the wheel of samsara turning. That is karma. I mean, karma is that grasping, self-willed action that uh, is born out of this delusion of a separate self. So you can think of it as a great cosmic principle, but you can just watch your own life. You can watch your own life, and you can see how karma drives you from moment to moment, and then you set up an expectation, and either you get what you want, oh, you're happy a little bit, but then you get bored with it, or you don't get what you want, and so you suffer. But in any case, it's never leading outside of this wheel. The wheel's just, oh, turning, 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 turning. Yeah? What is the logic that, uh, that deduced uh, Dr. Wolf to believe in karma, or reincarnation? You know, he never explained the whole thing to me, and I didn't ask him. He had converted to that idea as a theosophist, actually, I'm almost sure. And then when he was reading Eastern texts of Shankara and Buddhists, of course, they all take it for granted. It's just given. I mean, it's not a question, is there a reincarnation or not? It's just given. Just like in our culture, the laws of physics are given. We don't question them, you know? So... Uh, you teach what, <laughs> within the context of the people you're trying to reach. The same with the Western mystics. Reincarnation has a lot of explanatory power. It explains things like why somebody's wealthy and happy, and even though they're 
rotten, you know, you know that they don't really deserve this. How come they have all this wealth and power? Well, in the past life they were, you know, uh, very virtuous and so forth and, you know, whatnot. It's great for teaching the cultivation of compassion because of this whole idea that at one time everybody was, you know, your mother. I mean, this is something we kind of lost as well because in this culture we don't necessarily appreciate our mothers. I mean, it's just given in that culture, if someone was your mother, you would automatically want to do everything you could for them. Andrea knows a lot of Tibetan lamas. She was working with this one down in Lone Pine and he used to teach the traditional way of cultivating compassion. First think of your mother and how much you love her because and, and, you're always supposed to start with someone you love and then a stranger and then an enemy, you know, make it aggressive. And Andrea would say to me, well, not everybody in this culture had that experience with their mother <laughs> and that they automatically love their mother, that that's the best object to start with. So he finally kind of got that and he would say then, well, I understand some of you have problem with your mother. Try your dog. <laughs> That's a good note to bring the formal part of the morning to a close on. Until we see you again, peace to you all. In the meantime, check out the library, and uh, if you ever have any research to do, we have a nice little research section you can make use of.